so true. He is faithful in every way, isn't he? What a faithful God. Amen. Well, 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 last week we were introduced to Jesus Christ who came to this earth in order to rescue lost mankind. And again, we're in the midst of our search and rescue campaign, and so we're kind of focusing our messages kind of around that theme. And in Luke chapter 19, 10, the Bible says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
And of course, we said that he's leading the greatest manhunt in history. Its size and scale are unprecedented. No search and rescue operation has ever even compared to his. And boy, he's been at it for a long time. And he's throwing out the lifeline to all who are willing to receive it. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe it uh, should be up there. Where's it at here? There it is. And so he's throwing it out there. And he's saying, listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't know me, and you don't have your eternal destination settled and, and signed and sealed, I want you to know that I want you to be part of my family. I want you to have a home in heaven, and I want you to experience the joy of being a child of God. And he's throwing out the lifeline, and we talked about that last week, and we had took some time to do that. Now, today, we're going to talk a little bit about this idea that we need to search and rescue the captive, the captive. Take your Bible, turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 30 today. 1 Samuel chapter 30. We're going to begin in verse 1, and this uh, particular account may be very, very um, familiar with some, and on, other, on the other hand, it may, you may have never heard it before in your life. Either way, we're going to take some time to look at the passage and see what we can't learn and be encouraged to move forward with our search and rescue. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. We're going to read about David, and David, of course, is over a group of men, about 600 troops now. He is not the king of Israel yet. He's actually being chased down throughout the wilderness. He's actually on the run from Saul, who is the king. Now, we know that Saul's going to die in a battle, actually the battle that they themselves were going to be a part of, but now are no longer part of. And uh, we're going to see that he passes away, he dies in battle, but, and David ultimately rises to power as a result, because God had already anointed him to be a king, the next king. But David now is not in that position. So he has a band of men that he is over, 600 of them. And we're going to read a little bit about those men and David here in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captives and that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because, of, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar, uh, Abiathar the priest, Amalek's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar, he brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this truth? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David went, he and the 600 men that were with him, came to the brook Bezor, where, there were, where, there, uh, where those that were left behind stayed. 
And David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 abode behind, which were so faint that they could not go over the brook Bezor. And they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave the bread and he did eat. And they made him drink water and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit came again to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk any water three days and three nights. And David said unto him, To whom belongest thou and whence art thou? He said, I am a young man of Egypt. Servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me, because three days ago and I fell sick. We made an invasion upon the south of the Cherethites, and upon the coast which belongeth to Judah, and upon the south of Caleb. And we burned Ziglag with fire. And David said to him, Canst thou bring me down to this company? And he said, Swear unto me by God that thou wilt neither kill me nor deliver me unto the bands, excuse me, hands of my master, and I will bring thee down to this company. When he had brought him down, behold, they were spread about upon all the earth, eating and drinking and dancing, because all the great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. And David smote them from the twilight even unto the evening of the next day, and there escaped not a man of them, save four hundred young men, which rode upon camels and fled. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all. Now, did, did, did you just turn me up by chance? Okay, I just double checking. Testing, one, two. Can you hear me now? Okay, anyway, it's not a commercial. Okay, so anyway, we see here in the particular passage a number of things taking place. And I want to share just a couple of thoughts with you, first of all. Number one, it's interesting to me to note that the enemy seeks to destroy anything that you've built. Now again, in John chapter 10, verse 10, turn there, would you please? John chapter 10, verse 10. In John chapter 10, verse 10, we're going to read about the enemy. Now, I want you to realize, and we're going to note this a little bit later on, but Amalek is, represents the enemy of God and his people. And Throughout the Bible, when you see Amalek, you're going to see the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. Can I tell you, as we look at this battle, we learn a couple of things about the enemy. We learn that the enemy seeks to destroy anything that you've built. We note that in verse 1, and the passage, uh, in, in that particular passage, when it says, and it came to pass that, 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 that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziglag and smitten Ziglag and burned it with fire. Now notice again about this enemy that we face today. The enemy that we face is none other than Satan himself. And it says here, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's what the thief comes to do. And the thief is none other than the, the, the God of this world, Satan himself. And the Bible tells us that he comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Can I tell you that the enemy is always about destroying anything that you have built? Have you built a family today? Can I tell you that he wants to destroy your family? Have you built a marriage? He wants to destroy your marriage. Have you built a church, a church family? He wants to destroy that. Anything good that's been built, anything positive that's been built, anything that's going to be a plus in the cause of Christ or, or 
measure up to God's standard. He wants to bring down hard. He wants to destroy it. He wants to wreck it. He wants to ruin it. Have you built some guards around your life, some some standards that protect you from falling into sin? He wants to destroy them. Have you put guards up in your mind and, and things in place to try to protect your thought life? He wants to destroy it. He wants to wreck and ruin anything that you have built. But not only that, the enemy's after your family. <laughs> I mean, you look at this passage and it's obvious. He comes along and he takes uh, David's wives and he takes uh, the men's wives and their families. He steals them away. He takes them captive. I want you to know today that the devil is after your family. That's all there is to it. He's after your family. Gentlemen, especially you today, I just want you to understand. And, and again, I, I'm not about trying to wreck women or Say they're not important, they're absolutely essential. My friend, but let me tell you something. We have a real drought of male leadership in our world today and in our country and in our churches and in America and in the home. Can I tell you today that God expects you to protect your family? Protect your family from the devil. Protect your family from the destroyer. Protect your family from him who wants to wreck and ruin everything good that you've built in that home and that your wife and you have put together. Man, he wants to steal them. He wants to capture their minds. He wants to capture their their lives. He wants to take away anything good. We know that it's extremely sad to see good people taken captive by the enemy. We see it in the passage. I mean, the men are so distraught. They're so, so emotionally burdened down because of the loss or the, 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 the fact that their wives and children have been taken captive that they even get so desperate that they think about killing David himself. Take David's life. It's got to be his fault. Boy, they're so overwhelmed with grief, especially when it's your own family that's been taken captive. But you know, interestingly enough, Let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 30, and I want to show you the enemy's attitude, though. Look at verse 16, chapter 30, verse 16. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 16. Totally different attitude, mind you. Notice what it says in chapter 30, verse 16. And when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread abroad upon all the earth, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. Man, they had taken spoil. They had even gone into Ziglag and burned it with fire and taken the wives and the children and all the spoil with them. Man, they were rejoicing in this destruction. They thought it was the best thing since sliced bread. Can I tell you today that when your heart is breaking because some loved one or family member or friend of yours is taken captive by Satan, I want you to know Satan is laughing. Satan is enjoying himself. Satan is reveling in the victory. There's nothing good about Satan. There's nothing good about what he offers us. He's always seeking to divide. He's always seeking to conquer. He's always seeking to destroy We see so many examples of captivity today in our world, don't we? I, I, I thought I would share some statistics this morning. I started looking up statistics, and before I knew it, I was totally and completely overwhelmed by them. And I thought, this is ridiculous. 
All I want to do is prove the point that we're in a mess today and people have been taken captive and I thought nobody needs to hear statistics. We all can see it with our own eyes. We think about alcohol issues and drug addictions, opioids, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamines, hallucinogens of all types. We think about how they're wrecking lives, how they're stifling our economy, how they're stealing a generation. Our emergency rooms are full today. Our homes are divided. Our nations are in distress, all because Satan has taken captive. It's amazing. I mean, we're talking almost $800 billion that comes out of our economy because of drug and alcohol addictions. Over 10,000 people a year die in alcohol-related accidents in automobiles. Over 90,000 to 95,000 people a year just because of alcohol-related deaths. But we keep promoting it and we keep sticking it out there on every billboard and and, and on television and and on, on the internet. We keep selling it and selling it more and more effectively all the time. And then we wrap a little bit of sensuality in with it just to make it so much more appealing. And yet all those things combine to make a nation in captivity. We think about our homes and our families, the nuclear home, traditional family, biblical marriage are all under attack. We see it everywhere we turn. Immorality in all forms has continued to undermine relationships and society in general. I mean, the outcome are broken homes, broken lives, broken dreams. We see it everywhere, everywhere we turn. Pornography is just overwhelming America. And listen, don't think for a minute that we aren't moving quicker and faster than ever toward pedophilia and endorsing it and embracing it. It's crazy what we're seeing going on now. You think whatever you want about the last Supreme Court justice that was put on the Supreme Court, but my friend, when you consider the kind of sentences that she gave to men and and women that were involved in child pornography, my friend, we got problems. I'm sure she's a nice lady, and I bet you she's worked hard to get where she is. But that isn't the issue. The issue is she's going to be making decisions on the Supreme Court that affect our nation. And can I tell you, if she goes in the direction she thinks it should go, my friend, we're only going to see more captivity. It's sad. It's sad. We need to throw about nine solid fundamental Baptist preachers on the Supreme Court. Don't even need an education in the law. We just need to know the law. That's what we need. Satan is taking our children captive. He's taking our our families captive. Hey, man, this no God, no accountability, no wrong or right position has bankrupt the character of a generation. And as our norms deteriorate and society continues to self-destruct, we are left observing the handiwork of Satan. It is not society that's the problem. It's Satan. It's not our culture that's the problem. It is Satan. We've got to recognize and realize as believers that we are fighting an enemy, a real enemy. It's not a movement the God of this world that we're fighting. And it's not a person, by the way, that we're fighting as far as each other. 
People that make bad decisions are people that have been lied to and deceived by Satan, have bought into his lies. We need to rescue them because they've been taken captive. We ought to have compassion for them because they've been taken captive. Our heart ought to break for them because they've been taken captive. And by the way, as we look around us, it's easy to note those things that stand out, that just kind of glare as being wrong in our culture, our society, or, or detrimental to our families or whatever it might be. But my friend, let me tell you something. Satan has taken the souls of a lot of so-called good people and bound them and made them captive. Oh, okay, I'm not involved in pornography, and I'm not out sinning and, and, and committing great sin, and I'm not doing all the things that we're talking about. I'm not involved in drugs or alcohol. I've got a handle on all those things. My friend, let me tell you, you can be captive and not do any of those things. Say, so, hey, listen, that's just one more level, but that doesn't mean that you and I sometimes haven't lended ourselves to him or yielded ourselves to him and his ways. But we got to be careful. Listen, he's subtle. He's subtle. I want you to note a very important principle that we learn here, though, as well in the passage. It's, in, it's interesting. After being delivered from Egypt, Israel was confronted by Amalek. We read in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8, 8 through 13 about this, but let me just read the very first verse, verse 8. It says, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. The moment Israel escaped Egypt, the moment they were delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians, the moment that they escaped slavery, now they are brought face to face with the enemy Amalek. Amalek attacks them when they're their weakest. Amalek addresses them and tries to bring them down while they still think there's hope to do so. Can I tell you today, Amalek has been fighting God's people a long time. Uh, but wait, it, it, it doesn't end there. Some years later, of course, God would instruct Saul, who was the king. He would instruct him to utterly destroy Amalek. Turn, if you would, to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Amalek attacks Israel right on the onset, right at the beginning of their national journey. Notice what now happens here. In the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 2 and 3, let's start there. So now God goes to Saul the king, and thus saith the Lord of hosts. Notice in verse 2, chapter 15, 1 Samuel 15, 2. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which, that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. God reminds Saul now. He says, I remember when you all left Egypt, how Amalek laid in wait, how they sought to blindside you and destroy you on the onset. I haven't forgotten about that, Saul. Verse 3, now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. You say, man, that is severe. Can I tell you that the Bible teaches us something very important, that that which was written aforetime was written for our learning. 
Now listen, I know that seems extremely severe. Can I tell you that God is going to try to teach us a lesson today, a spiritual lesson? In those days, he responded in a physical manner. Today, he uses the physical to affect the spiritual. Watch this. What they were supposed to do to Amalek, who is the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people, we are to do today to the enemy that we face. Watch this now. They were to destroy everything, totally annihilate, to do away with Amalek and the Amalekites. Completely. Why? Because God knew for a, forever and ever and ever that if they didn't totally and completely deal with them, that they'd be a thorn in their side and forever battling them and forever tripping them up, messing them up, and ultimately taking their loved ones and bringing them into captivity. You say, how do you know that? Because David is now found fighting the Amalek again. You say, why would he do that if they destroyed everyone? Saul did not obey. In verse 9 of that passage in chapter 15, the Bible says, but Saul and the people spared Agag. Agag was the king, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. Uh-oh, wait a second. Think about this for a minute. Everything that they perceived to be good, they didn't destroy. Now, wait a second. Amalek represents the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. That's what it represents to us in the New Testament. Saul chooses not to destroy it all. Now, he blames the people, of course, but in the end he even says, me and the people, we didn't do this. So he didn't obey God. Instead of destroying it all, instead of utterly destroying, he goes ahead and he holds back, and they take the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, all the things they considered good. They didn't even kill the king. You say, but they did a job. They killed a lot of people. Oh, yeah, they did. Boy, it looked like they really did a job, but they did not obey God, and they did not totally eradicate it. Can I tell you, in our world today, you and I, we're in a bad position now. Because when we go to the world, and we know God says that this is wrong, do not buy into the world. Do not... And we say, you know, there's some things about the world we do enjoy. There's some things about the world that we do like. And they don't seem that bad after all, right? The best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, the best of this and the best of that. The good things, you know, there are good things in the world, right? That's what Saul thought. That's what the people thought. Oh, you know what was even better? They said, the only reason we saved all those Good things is because we're going to offer them to God for a sacrifice. So now they got spiritual. They didn't obey God, but now they said, but we did it for God. You know what the problem is with us? Sometimes we find ourselves in the same boat, don't we? God says, don't you allow that in your home. And we go, yeah, but a little bit ain't going to hurt. It's still good. Well, if it's poison, no matter how it's packaged, is still poison, right? I mean, we got to think about it from that perspective, right? If it's wrong, it's wrong. If it's not all right, it's wrong. And we've got to be careful here, don't we? We do have to be careful. 
Because what's happening is, and what we found that took place was that ultimately because of their poor decision, because they did not obey God and they did not utterly destroy the Amalekites, guess what? David, we find David now fighting and dealing with the Amalekites. And guess what the Amalekites are still doing? To God and his people, taking them captive. We've got to deal with the world in our life. We've got to deal with sin in our life. We cannot allow remnants of sin to continue in our homes, our lives, our marriages, and families, or they'll come back to bite us. Hold on. Saul was fine. In a, no, he died, of course, in the, the battle upcoming. But here's the thing. Saul ultimately, he and those around him, they didn't have to deal with the Amalekites much after that. But you know who did? Their offspring. See, it's not going to be you that struggles so much with those things. It'll be your kids that do. We got, we got to eradicate these things in our lives, our homes, our families. Otherwise, our children are the ones that are going to be taken captive by Satan. So what must we do in order to rescue those taken captive by Satan then? And here's really the message, right? What do we do? Well, let's find out. What did David and his guys do? How did they deal with it? We know that they ultimately went and they found the Amalekites and they, they did a bang-up job. So what did they do? First of all, number one, here's what we have to do if we're going to take or rescue those taken and captive by Satan. One, master the art of war. We're going to have to master the art of war. You say, what do you mean? Well, the Bible tells us that we're soldiers, right? We're not going to take time to look at it, but the Bible teaches us that we're soldiers in the book of Timothy. And you know what? When we look at David and his men, we're going to find men that were trained. These were men of war. They trained. You know, in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, there's a list of armor that's given in Ephesians chapter 6. We, we see that. The only weapon that is mentioned is the sword. Now, I I would kind of argue that maybe prayer is a weapon. It's found in verse 18. But most would say, well, there's armor and then there's the sword. You don't put prayer on like armor, okay? So I'll give them that a little bit. But, but the sword was mentioned, okay? So we have the sword. And, and what we find about that sword, turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. It was a weapon. If you and I have any hope of rescuing those taken captive, we had better we had better master the art of war. Because it's going to be a battle. Remember, Satan is our enemy, and if anybody's been taken captive, it's by Satan. You say, yeah, but really it's an alcohol problem. No, it's a Satan problem. It's a tool he uses. Well, it's just... It's immorality, it's, it's, it's wrecked and ruined my son's life. No, Satan has wrecked and ruined your son's life, and he's used immorality to do it. it it's, it's Satan at work, and he's pulled something out of his tool bag called immorality, and he took your son captive by it. You better, and I better, master the art of war. Notice again in Ephesians six seventeen, he says, and take the helmet of salvation, watch this, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
Now, back in that Old Testament, when David and his fellows went out to fight, they pulled a literal sword out, didn't they? Man, they were cutting and slashing. Heads are flying. Arms are... Can you imagine how disgusting battle would have been and how difficult and how horribly gory battle would have been in those days? Hand-to-hand combat, swords swinging, spears and shields and all of that. But the sword was their main weapon. Hey, hold on a second. The Bible tells us in the New Testament we may not be girding a sword, a literal one, but we have a sword. See, again, the New Testament is, the Old Testament, everything was physical. In the New Testament, we see it's spiritual now. That sword that they wielded, that sword that they ultimately rescued those that were taken captive by the enemy, hey, we have a sword to do the same then. It's called the Word of God. This is the Word of God. And as a result of that, it's the sword of the Spirit, the Bible says. We better master the art of warfare. We better get good with the weapon that God's given us, the Word of God. And in Isaiah 55, verse 11, the Bible says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. He says, my word is not coming back void. My word is going to do the work that it was intended to do. I'm going to tell you what, you can go ahead and come up with all your psychology and your psychiatry and all your counseling and do everything you want, but if you do not share this book right here, if you don't give the biblical principles to rescue those taken captive, my friend, they will remain in captivity, whether it's one tool of Satan or another tool, they'll still be in captivity because the only one that can truly rescue those taken captive is Jesus Christ and his purpose, his promises. Trained. They were trained. They were tested. Do you know the only way you really get good at warfare is to be battle tested? Oh, you can train all you want, and, and it's good to train because it provides you with some muscle memory, they call it. And that's needed. It's necessary. It's vital. But until you're on the battlefield, until you actually are in some warfare, you're not battle tested. You don't know how you'll really respond. David's men were battle-tested. They'd been through this a number of times. They knew what to expect, and they knew what to expect of themselves and from the other enemy. They knew what they would see. They knew what they would experience. They understood warfare. They were trained. They were tested. These men were tempered. They were hardened by it all. They had been submitted to the fire, if you will, and they came out stronger I don't know, out of the 600 men that he had, let's just take the weakest one. Take the the wimpiest soldier he had. Let's put him up front today. There he is with his armor on. There he is with his sword in his hand. And I invite any one of you men or women to come forward and take the sword sitting on the step and fight them to the death. You'd be an idiot to try, and so would I, because I'm telling you, that man was trained in warfare. He had cut off a number of limbs. He had taken off heads. This guy here knew what it was to see blood gushing everywhere. He knew what it was to fight in real warfare. 
You weren't going to take his life. He wasn't going to surrender. I promise you that. You would have to kill him. And unless you are extremely good with a sword and you have been battle-tested, my friend, there is no way you and I could compete with that right there. We're running out into the world today trying to rescue the perishing. We're trying to rescue the captive with our reasoning, with our intellect, with our programs. You're going to need a sword, and it's going to be battle. It won't come easy. You don't start off by facing Satan, you start off by facing one of his troops. This idea, well, I'll just face Satan, I'll deal with it. No, you ain't going to fight Satan, and neither am I. We better get in the battle where we're at first before we try to go fight that one. Not only do we need to master the art of war, we need to practice the act of worship. In the verse, verses 6 through 8, of our passage here in chapter 30, the Bible says, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because of the, the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Man, if you and I are going to be effective at rescuing those that have been taken captive by Satan, we better be able to encourage ourselves in the Lord. We better be able to get a hold of God. Matter of fact, he goes on to say in verse 7 and 8, it says, And David said to Abiathar, the priest, Amalek's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? Not only did he encourage himself in the Lord, but now we see David praying. He's inquiring of God now. Listen, we are not going to rescue those that have been taken captive by simply trying to reason with them. We're going to have to take the sword of the Spirit, and we're going to have to get, then get a hold of God and say, God, you got to give me some wisdom. you got to give me insight. i got to understand what buttons to push. I need to know what their need is in their life, their greatest need. How am I going to be able to help them see the light of the Word? How am I going to help them to recognize the detriment of their decisions? How are you going to do that? God, you got to give me wisdom. I don't have it. And I'm going to be wielding your sword Direct me to the verses I need. Direct me to the principles I must share. God, they're, they're taken captive. They're blinded. And I have to help them see by the light of the Word of God. And I'm going to tell you right now, we have got to get a hold of God. If we are going to see our loved ones, our family members, our friends rescued out of captivity, we better... Learn how to get a hold of God and how to use this book, the Word of God. It's a spiritual warfare. You, you got a family member that's addicted to drugs. My goodness, I, I can't even imagine. I feel so bad for you. I, I can't even imagine. It seems hopeless at times. It does. It's horrible. You have a family member that's a drunkard. I'm so sick of what we've done to drugs and alcohol and how we've defined it now as, as, as a disease type thing. It's not even a disease anymore. It's a condition. My friend, it's not a condition. It's sin. We've got to start calling it what it is. Anything Satan can do to throw us off his trail, 
to make us think somehow that it's emotional, it's mental. No, it's spiritual. You say, I don't agree with you. You don't have to agree with me. You fight it out with God. My friend, he called them drunkards. He called them harlots. He called them all kinds of things in the Bible. My friend, let me tell you something. We better get back to the Word of God and quit trying to figure it out in our own strength and our own mind. Because he is faking us out. He is wrecking our homes and our lives. There is none of this stuff that's working, apparently, because every time I look at the statistics, they keep increasing. Now we have 10-year-olds that want to remove body parts because they think they're not what they were born to be. You tell me we don't have a problem, spiritual problem in America. Doesn't that bother you? Doesn't it make you angry? And we stand by and we go, well, we can't do anything about it. We'll just keep our mouths shut. We don't want to create a problem. Something wrong with this. That is not politicians. That's not our culture, our society. That is Satan at work. It is a spiritual warfare. My friend, we better get to the place where we master the art of war because there are people being taken captive every moment of this day. We better practice the act of worship. We better get on our knees. We better start praying like never before. We're going to rescue those that have been taken captive. Finally, stay on the attack. We've got to stay on the attack. Look at verse 17, 1 Samuel 30, verse 17. Hey, listen, there's hope yet. You say, oh, we're done. We're finished. And again, I would agree. I was talking to one of our brothers this week, and we mentioned the fact that in, in prophecy, we do not see America. Hold on a second, though. Who's to say that it has to happen tomorrow? Why can't we see a revival in America? What, God is no longer able? Or is it just that we are, I mean, what, are we going to give up on our country? Are we going to give up on our people? Our nation? It's not the nation that's most important, it's the people in it. Man, don't give up on them. I'm not giving up on it, I just can't. We need to master the art of war. We need to practice the act of worship, and we need to stay on the attack. Look at verse 17. David smote them from the twilight even unto the evening of the next day. There escaped not a man of them, save 400 young men, which rode upon camels and fled. Now, those camels are, are cut above the rest, you know. They're really fast. Let me tell you something. In this case, they stayed on the attack. You say, what's that mean, all that stuff? Well, literally what it basically says is, from what I can tell, they battled for 24 straight hours. That's the way I see it. Now, again, that's assuming that it was the twilight of the evening till the evening of the next day. Now, if it was the twilight of the morning to the next day, it would be even longer. Then that'd be 36 hours. So they at least battled 24 full hours. Well, we need to stop to get something to eat. Okay, go ahead. I can't. I lost my arm. Hey, they didn't have time to mess around, man. I tell you what, food, drink, all those necessities, they were going by the wayside. They were fighting for their very lives, and they were trying to win back those that had been taken captive. Their wives and their children were at stake. More than their own lives, they cared about their families, and they said, we're going to be uncomfortable if we have to be. We're going to do whatever it takes, but we're going to get those that have been taken captive by the enemy, and we're going to free them. We're going to get them back. 
we can't concede one soul to Satan. We just can't do it. We've got to stay in the battle. We've got to keep fighting. We've got to continue to attack. The church has been so passive through the years, haven't we? As a church, and I'm talking about in general, the church, so passive. The church sits back in their auditoriums and we hold our revivals and we hold our meetings and we keep it here. You're really a good person and you're really a good person. And man, you're spiritual and I'm spiritual. And boy, God's blessing us. Look at how he meets our needs. Look at all the financial blessings we have in our life. Look at our beautiful home and our nice car. And, and man, my wife, she got these nice dresses she wears. She looks so pretty now. And man, I mean, my, my family and boy, it's just such a blessing. Well, all along the world's going to hell. But we're comfortable. Man, that's why I love Saturday so much. We're over here talking at one of the doors with a lady who was a school teacher, a wonderful lady. And she's telling us just a few things, giving us a little insight into what she's facing. And all of a sudden, our big bus comes driving down the road. She goes, oh, I see you have a ride waiting. I said, yeah, we got about 20 teams out here right now, and we're scouring this area with the gospel. Let me tell you something. We were in warfare yesterday. We were in the heat of battle. We need you to get on board. Because there's a world that's been taken captive and there are souls that are dying. We've got to stop being so worried about our comfort and start worrying about delivering those that have been taken captive. Fanny Crosby, she loved sharing the gospel with everybody who would listen course, you know Fanny Crosby couldn't see anything, of course. She was blind from her childhood. But Fanny Crosby loved sharing the gospel. Well, I don't know how she could do that, being blind. She uses her mouth, not her eyes. Isn't that interesting? We always have excuses, don't we? Fanny Crosby didn't. In 1869, she penned the words, to rescue the perishing. When asked about the song, she said, it was written following a personal experience at the New York City Bauer Mission. She went on to say that she'd go one night a week to talk to her boys, as she called them. Her boys. One night while speaking to them, she kept having the thought that there was a boy present who had wandered away from his mother and must be rescued that night, or he'd be eternally lost. She made a plea to every single one of the men that were there that day. She, again, she called them her boys, and, and she, she just begged them, begged them, begged them to come to Christ. And at the end of the service, one of the young men came forward and said, Did you mean me, Miss Crosby? I promised my mother to meet her in heaven, but as of now, I'm living in a way that that'll just be totally impossible. She prayed with him. She ultimately led him to Jesus Christ. And as they finished, he said, Now I'm ready to meet my mother in heaven, for I've found God. That song says, Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Snatch them in pity from sin in the grave. Weep for the erring one. Lift up the fallen. Tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful, Jesus will save. A boy came home one hot afternoon. He was anxious to take a cool swim in the pond behind his house. And 
He lived in South Florida, so taking a quick, dip, a quick dip wasn't that awful unusual, especially on a heated day. It was a good way to cool off. And he was so anxious to get to the water that he didn't even go inside to change his clothes. He just raced for the pond, dropped his shoes, his shirt, and his socks along the way. His mother spotted him diving off the dock, and uh, she just kind of stepped outside to check on him to see how he was doing. And she watched her son swim toward the middle of the lake, and she also spotted an alligator moving from the far shore toward her son. She began screaming the warning, and the boy stopped in mid-swim. He finally understood the danger. He began to race back toward the dock, and just as he reached her, the alligator reached him. He latched onto that boy's legs with all his strength, began to try to twist and turn him and drag him into the water. But about the same time that he had grabbed hold of the legs, mom had grabbed hold of his arms. And there a human tug-of-war took place. She began screaming at the top of her lungs just in horror. The water stained with blood, her son just in agony. And a farmer driving by heard the screams and he ran to help. He, he shot the alligator and helped the mother call for help. The boy survived. He went to jail because he shot an animal. I'm teasing. But anyway, he <laughs> I just had to throw that in. But anyway, so he shot the alligator and he helped mom pull her son in and call for help. The boy survived. And after several weeks of hospitalization, after several weeks of surgeries and working on the boy, he was ready to talk with news reporters. The reporter asked the child if he could see where the alligator had bitten him. And much like any other boy, I mean, obviously, and you know how it is, even us, we love to show off our scars. And so he showed off his healing wounds to the interested reporter. And as he was doing so, he said, but wait, but wait, look at these. And with that, he showed the reporter the scars on his arms I have great scars on my arms, too. I have them because my mom wouldn't let go. Satan is coming along, and he's attacking our families, our loved ones, our friends, our co-workers. He's taking them captive. trying to drag them into the abyss of sin and ultimately hell. We've got to do our best to grab hold and hold on for dear life. We can't let go of them. We can't just give up. We've got to keep fighting. We've got to rescue those that have been taken captive. Oh, it may leave a few scars and some may not understand why it hurts so much when we're trying to help them. But if they'll just give it a little time, they'll begin to understand that all that we did, we did for their own good. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying, 
Snatch them in pity from sin and the grave. Weep for the erring one, lift up the fallen. Tell them of Jesus the mighty to save. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. Father, we come to you. We ask you, Lord, just to help us, Father, to truly, Father, do our best to rescue those who have been taken captive. May we master the art of war. May we practice the act of worship. And, Lord, help us to stay on the attack, to never let go, never give up. Help us to make a decision, Lord, to share the gospel with somebody even this week that needs it, to do our best to take hold and try to rescue them from Satan and keep them from being drugged into the abyss of sin or even hell. Today, maybe you have failed to come to Christ to this point in your life. You didn't even realize and recognize your need of him. You, you know things aren't right in your life. You know that there's sin that seems to overwhelm you at times or take charge of you. You know that, that what you're doing doesn't align with a holy God the creator of the universe, if you believe in God, that is. But if you do, you know that this can't be what he wants for me. No, he wants you to be part of his family. He wants you to confess your sin, and he wants you to receive and accept his son, Jesus Christ, because he wants you to be a part of his family. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Would you like to trust and receive him today? Wouldn't you like him to be your savior? Satan just wants to wreck and ruin you. He wants to destroy you and your family. But God, he wants to give you life and life more abundantly. Father, bless those that are in need of Christ. May you convict them of their sin and show them their need of Jesus. Father, may they not delay. May they not wait. Help them not to, Father, put off what can be done right now. Do not allow them even to walk out the door without them knowing they need Jesus and make them make a decision even now for you. Lord, I know that you, they must choose themselves, but Lord, put the pressure on even now. Holy Spirit of God, convict them of their sin and their need of Jesus. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed. The music's playing. I don't know.